Hello, and welcome to the Permission to Succeed podcast. The Permission to Succeed podcast is about learning from and being inspired by people who have been successful because they found that point in their lives to give themselves permission to go and do it. The genesis of this podcast is based on the inspirational lives of Martin Luther King and Muhammad Ali and their world-changing impact. Two dreamers and doers. The Permission to Seed podcast is brought to you by iris.xyz, the most helpful place advisors can come to to grow their minds and businesses. Power your advice at iris.xyz. This is your host, Doug Heikinen. And we're going to do things a little differently today. In these extraordinary times, we like to do evergreen podcasts, but it's, it's a different time. So it's my pleasure to welcome JT McCormick, who's an author, president, and CEO of Scribe Media. Good afternoon, JT. Doug, how are you, sir? I am great. Like I said, it is pretty nuts out there. Today's Thursday, March 19th, and we're facing a global challenge that we're all in this together. How are you and your team doing down in Austin? We are doing phenomenal. And I, and I say that with, with respect to those who may not be in such a, a great place, especially from my background. I, I know what it's like to live check to check. And here we have in our country, three out of every five individuals in this country are hourly uh, workers. And so we're taking a big toll on those who work check to check and those who work hourly who now find themselves unemployed. So we're, we're doing great as a company. We're doing phenomenal. We, we've set ourselves up in a position to where we will come out of this even stronger. And as I've said to our tribe, we call ourselves a tribe, that we don't want to just come through this. We want to come out even better. So what kind of trends are you seeing as people work to adjust their lives in this new reality of social distancing? You know, for for us, we have wanted to stay ahead of this and not be reactive, to be proactive. So right now, all 50 of us are remote and we're set up. We've been set up to be able to do that for quite some time, even though uh, 40 out of the 50 of us are here in Austin. We come into the office uh, two, three times uh, a week. We've always been set up to, to be able to do this remotely. So what we're seeing is... There's a bit of a contraction in business, uh, obviously, and when there's uncertainty, people don't want to to spend money. But uh, we we've seen that many people are taking advantage of this time, and given that we we publish books, a lot of people are taking advantage of this and saying, "Hey, I've got time. I'm stuck at the house. I, I'm going to focus on doing my book now." So it's it's been a, a a blessing, and we've been fortunate from that standpoint. You know, media has been all over the place with good stories, bad stories. Is there anything that's caught your eye that's been rather inspiring? Inspiring, I would say a couple of the things that I've enjoyed from an inspirational standpoint is just seeing how communities are coming together, specifically for for me. I'm going to make it a bit personal here. I was one of those kids as as a child that depended on free lunch, and there were times I remember 
you know, Friday afternoon when I eat lunch, I knew I was not going to eat lunch again until Monday afternoon because there was no food at the house. So I've really been inspired by watching a lot of the communities acknowledge the fact that there's no school. So no school means some of these kids don't eat. So what they're doing is is making sure that these kids still have meals and have a way to eat. So that's been very inspirational for me from a from a personal standpoint, especially. That segues right into my next question, which is you're such an amazing guest for this series because you spend your life giving yourself permission to succeed. Can you tell us a little bit more about your upbringing and how you got to where you got to? Oh, Doug, you know, that's, a, that's an open-ended question, man. You got to give me a, a, a talking point to go with on that one. <laughs> go for it. Um, you know, I'll, I'll start and I'll give you the high level and we can go into details if you want. My father was a black pimp and drug dealer back in the 70s. And when I say pimp, my, my father put women on a street corner. They sold their bodies and, and he took every dollar. And he also managed along the way to father 23 children. So I'm one of 23 and the most he had by one woman was three. So that lets you know how much he got around. And then my mother, my mother's white, uh, so my father was black, my mother's white, I'm, I'm mixed race. My mother is uh, white, and she was raised in an orphanage, a 1950s institutional orphanage where the kids were routinely beat, neglected, and abused. When she turned 17 years old, they gave her $20, a small suitcase, and they said, good luck to you, there's the world. And unfortunately for my mother, one of the first people she met was my well-dressed, fast-talking, quite a bit older father, and so... Here I am, uh, grew up in the 70s, again, mixed race, not a good look back in the 70s. Uh, you know, <laughs> black people didn't like me because I was half white. White people didn't like me because I was half black. So uh, me being mixed race in the 70s, not a good look. And uh, again, fast forward, I, I was sexually molested from the ages of six to eight. Uh, by one of my father's prostitutes. I was in and out of juvenile three different times. I never graduated high school, had to go to summer school to, to take a, get enough credits to get my uh, GED slash high school diploma, never went to college, and you know, here, here I am. There's more to just here I am. <laughs> <laughs> how do you get a shovel and dig out of that? Where do you find a shovel? Where do you know, how do you know where to hold to? How do you know where to get someplace? You know, I, I will take it back to three words that I eliminated as a, as a kid. And those three words that I just completely deleted from my vocabulary were hope, wish, and luck. And I'll, I'll dive into those. So hope, when I was a kid and I would hope my father would come pick me up, it, it, he never showed. When I would hope there was something to eat when I got home, it never produced anything. So I, I did away with the word hope. And, and so much so, I've got a, a good friend of mine, he's a pastor, and he heard me say that one time. And he goes, JT, I, I preach hope in my sermon every Sunday. He goes, in fact, I said hope 16 times last Sunday in my sermon. I said, okay, I'll make this real easy for you. Do you want me to hope? there's a God or do you want me to believe there's one? And keep in mind, he's a pastor and he looks at me and he goes, damn. <laughs> <laughs> and where, why that moved him was I said to him, look, belief 
forces execution. If I truly believe there's a God, then I have to live a godly life. If I believe I can have that nice house in that nice neighborhood, then I've got to execute on a plan to achieve and get that house. If I believe that I can get a promotion at work, then I've got to execute and do what it takes to get that house. So I eliminated hope and and I replaced it with belief a long time ago. Now go into the other two, wish. Uh, wishing that's probably just a disgusting word in itself. It doesn't produce anything. You can, you know, wish there's something to eat when you get home, uh, wish you had a nice house, wish you had a nice career. It's just not going to produce anything. And, and I'm so passionate about eliminating the word wish. I've got four children, uh, six, four, two, and one are the ages of my children. When we have their birthday parties and it's time to blow out the candles on the cake, we don't say make a wish in our house. We say make a goal. So there is no wishing to, to be had at the McCormick family house. It just doesn't produce anything. And then the last word, luck, I just don't believe that there's any luck. For all of those people who say the $100 million lottery winner is lucky, no, he or she isn't. They bought a ticket. So I, those three words have been very critical in me achieving the things that I've had because I eliminated those words a long time ago. Were there people who gave you shots along the way or was this a, I'm going to go believe and make things happen? You know, Doug, no one does anything uh, alone. And and, and I'm going to push back at you a second here. Um, I've always said this, no one's ever given me an opportunity if you hired me, it's because you had a need, you had a role to fill, and I could have just as easily flamed out and gotten fired. But if I got in the door, I created my opportunity to succeed. If you hired me, it was up to me to succeed in that role and go over and above to get promoted and continue to work my way up, make more money and, and receive promotions. So I, I, no one's ever given me anything, but hands down along the way, there have been people who have helped me. There have been lessons that I've taken from individuals, uh, a critical one for me, my third grade teacher, Mrs. Dedeck. I remember in class in third grade, she said, there are no dumb or stupid questions. And Doug, I've been asking questions ever since. And so that was powerful. And then even my father being a a black pimp and drug dealer, I I learned some valuable lessons from him. One of the, the most valuable lessons I've ever learned in life came from my father. He taught me to say hello, be kind and show respect to everyone. But here's how that lesson came to me. When I was eight years old, my father had had me one weekend and we're walking through the grocery store and a little girl walks uh, by me and she goes, hi, Javon. My, my real name's Javon. And I didn't say anything. I was shy and I put my head down. My father hits me in the back of the head. My face falls to the ground. My nose is bleeding. He snatches me up and he's got me pinned up against the frozen food door and he's got his forearms just jammed in my neck. And he looks at me two inches away from my face and he says, I don't care who it is. You show respect, be kind and say hello to everyone. And from that day forward, I have said hello to everyone that I come across. Uh, and, and you know, it's a harsh lesson. I won't teach my kids the same way, but it was a very powerful lesson for me. And it's, it's the damnedest thing as well, Doug, when I give you the, the rest of that story. 
what was interesting to me is 30 minutes before we had just finished collecting money from prostitutes. And here was this man teaching me this lesson after we just finished collecting money from prostitutes. But that lesson really stuck with me. Now, it sounds like you never thought you weren't going to make it at some point. Was there a switch that flipped or was it just your attitude from the beginning? Wow. Oh, I greatly appreciate that question. You know, I would be lying if I said that there weren't times that I was just down and out with self-doubt. My mother said something to me maybe in my teens, uh, maybe even earlier, but I just remember she told me that for people, she told me that committing suicide was one of the most selfish acts anyone could do because you may eliminate your pain, but you leave those who love you left in sorrow and pain. And that stuck with me. And, and so whenever I would get down and out and I'd say to myself, oh, I'd rather not even be alive, I would always think about when she said that to me. But from the time I had my first job to go in directly into your question, my first job out of high school after I got my, my GED diploma was cleaning toilets. And I had to clean the toilets at a restaurant from the night before. So I came in in the morning, got there at 9 a.m., and I had to clean the toilets from the, the night before. And they were always filthy and nasty. And I remember one day standing there saying to myself, okay, if this is my job, I am going to have the cleanest toilets in the state of Texas. I am going to be the very best at what I do, whatever it is that I'm doing. And here's the damnedest thing, Doug. That lesson came from my dad. He told me one time, I don't care what you do in life, whatever it is, be the best at it. He said, if you're going to sweep the streets, be the best street sweeper. And I could have given me a little more aspiration than something to look forward to, but that was his example. He said, whatever you do, be the best at it. And I remember standing there 18 years old, looking at those toilets and saying, okay, I'm going to be the best at this and I'm going to have the cleanest toilets in the state of Texas. And from that point on, everything that I've done in life, I've strived to be the very best. Now with one of 23 kids, did he see something in you to teach you all these things or were he was teaching everybody? Uh, he was teaching everybody, whoever was in his path at that given time. If he had three of us that weekend, we all got the same lesson. If he had two of us that weekend, we got the lesson. So it was whoever was around uh, at, at the time. And, and uh, Doug, I, I got to share this with you. When I was a kid, I every time I saw my dad, those those few times, but when every time I saw my dad, he would always go on and on about how the only difference between him and the CEO of Budweiser was that our society chose to make the drug of the CEO of Budweiser legal. And he would go into detail and explain to us that, you know, prohibition was, you know, alcohol was illegal once in our country. And we chose as a society to make alcohol legal. And so he would go on and on about this story that the only difference between him and the CEO of Budweiser was that our government chose to make uh, alcohol legal. So about two years ago, Doug, I was on the cover of a magazine. It was called CEO Leadership. And on the cover of this magazine was myself, four-star General Petraeus, who used to be the director of the CIA, Heisman Trophy winner Bo Jackson, billionaire hedge funder Leon Cooperman. But above me 
on the cover of the magazine was the CEO of Budweiser. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought to myself, I was like, wow, well played, dad, well played. So, uh, you know, my, my lessons just came from some very interesting places in life, but I choose, I've always chosen always to look back at my life and find the lessons that I can use to utilize in life to make me a better person. I've chosen to find the positives. I've never been a victim. I've never said, oh, me, oh, my, why, why was I dealt this, this, this hand of cards? Why was my dad a, a pimp and my mother an orphan? I've never looked back in my life and said those things. So let's transition to Scribe Media. Tell us a little bit about the company. Wow. So we have, we're we're a a book publisher and we have worked with over 1,600 authors. And I'll I'll give you a couple of the bigger names uh, that we've worked with. Uh, Last year, we had a a big win. We published the book for the uh, ex-Navy SEAL David Goggins, and he had the most sought-after book in America last year, second only to Michelle Obama. So we published his book, We've published the book for the comedian Tiffany Haddish. One of the books that I'm very proud of because it speaks of our quality is we published the book for the Nobel Peace Prize Committee. And I always say to to people, you know, if it's good enough for the Nobel Peace Prize Committee, then our quality is good enough for everybody else. So very, very proud of that. But I mean, we've worked with David Bach, the the you know the guy. He's had nine New York Times bestselling uh, books. Big, he's a big on Oprah. We've worked with the Gino Wickman, who did Traction. We've wor- we're working right now with Nassim Taleb. So, uh, you know, those are a lot of the bigger names. But ninety eight percent of our authors are founders, CEOs consultants, business owners who want to do their book and want to create credibility, thought leadership, lead generation. So that that's what we do. We've been around for five years now. And, and I say this very proudly in a society right now where we live that uh, unicorns, these billion dollar unicorns are celebrated and they don't even have any profit. I always say to people, we're the actual real unicorn because we have no debt, no loans, no private equity, no venture capital, and we're profitable and we're a five-year-old company. I love the headline on your site, which is everybody, everyone should write and publish their book. So Why? Because everyone has a story. Actually, I I appreciate you bringing up that headline. That headline actually came from my my mother. When I was a kid, my mother would always say to me, never judge anyone because everyone has a story and you don't know their story. And so where we transferred that into the company was we believe Everyone has a story and should tell their story. Could be for various reasons. For me, I did my book. I never did my book for it to go public. I did my book as a legacy piece for my for my children. I, I've always been fascinated by the Ford family, the Kennedys, who, you know, they have four or five generations that they can track. Given my background, I can't track 30 minutes of, of my background. So I am blown away that more people, especially those who have the financial means, that more people don't do their book if for no other reason to have a legacy piece. How do your grandkids know what you accomplished? How do your great-grandkids know what you accomplished? By the time they find out about you, the stories are lost in translation. There's few stories that are even remaining. So 
I've always been blown away just from a legacy piece alone that more people don't write their book. A lot of our audience are financial advisors. Is this something they could use to differentiate themselves in a highly competitive industry? Oh, God, yes. I'm going to steal the story from one of our uh, wealth advisors we did a book for. So he told me that this is directly his story. He told me, he said, man, JT, when I would have prospective clients in my office or I would even have my own clients in my office, he said, I'd always wrap up and I'd say, hey, here's two of my cards. If you know anybody, please, you know, let them know about me. And he told me, he said, I knew before they left my office, they probably threw my business cards in the trash. And he said, maybe they were polite and they didn't throw them away until they were outside the office. He said, but I knew they would throw my cards away. He said, the minute I did my book and I would wrap up meetings and I'd give them two copies of my book, he said his business took off because now those individuals were incentivized to pass out his book. They wanted to show, hey, look, my guy wrote the book on XYZ. So now it made them look good, not just him. And he said his business skyrocketed after that. So it sounds really daunting for somebody to write a book. Can you tell us a little bit about the process? And is it hard, easy? How long does it take? So... It's interesting. It's been factually proven. One of the hardest things to do is to think and write at the same time. So what our process does is it takes the actual writing piece out of it. We want you to sit back, grab your beverage of choice, and let us pull that content from you. Let us interview you. Let us ask about the details that make for a great story, that make for a great book. So we, it's an it's a interview process where we pull your content, but what's very important is we're not ghostwriters in the traditional sense. This book is going to be your tone, your voice, your content, your book. You can't come to us and say, hey, JT, go write a book about the new iPhone. I go do a bunch of research, come back, we slap Doug's name on it, boom, there's your book. No, this is your book, your tone, your voice, your content, your book. So through a series of interviews, we pull that content from you. We lock in the manuscript, do any edits, any revisions that we need to do. We work with you on on your cover design, our uh, creative director. She's done 17 New York Times bestselling covers now. Then we do your interior layout. We get your book published. We register it, get your ISBN number, get your book up on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, iBooks, Google Play, so on and so forth. The process itself takes about seven to nine months All in, you're going to spend about 45 to 50 hours on your book. Much of that's going to be front-loaded during the interviews. So you're going to put about a week's worth of work into your book over the course of seven to nine months. That's just amazing. You would never think that that could happen. (laughs) Well, as I said, one of the hardest things to do is to think and write at the same time. There's a reason why Ernest Hemingway would go off to Sun Valley, Idaho to to write his books, because it's just incredibly hard, especially we all have lives, we have businesses, we have families. So to try to actually sit and write a book, it's just so time consuming. So we've tried to eliminate uh, all of the hard parts of actually sitting and thinking uh, about your book. 
we want you to just speak your book. And, and the, what's interesting about it is actually how I did my book with the company. I was able to sit and, and share the stories from my, my past, my childhood, and uh, our team made sure it, sh- it was structured correctly, it flowed correctly, and, and everything in the, in the book made for a great book. That's great. You also sit on the board of Conscious Capitalism, which I think is interesting and relevant. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why you started it and the work you do with leaders? So I started working with Conscious Capitalism because I found it very interesting. If uh, Again, from a selfish perspective, my background, where I come from, lower economic communities, is Conscious Capitalism to me is giving back to those who don't understand or know about capitalism. And what I mean by that is, how is a, a kid in a lower economic community supposed to know he or she can be a barista when there's no Starbucks even in the community? I, I, I would never even known what a barista was when I was a kid. How am I supposed to know I can be a bank teller when there's no banks in the communities where I'm from? Or, or how would I know about organic food when there's no whole foods in the lower economic communities, but there's a ton of payday loans and liquor stores. And so for me, I truly believe in the power of capitalism. Capitalism has given me the life that that I have. I I understand about investing. I self-taught myself how to turn $100 into eight figures and what carried interest means. God bless carried interest. So it's... Those are the pieces for me when I think conscious capitalism of what it could do for lower economic communities if they just knew what was available to them. That's great. Let's, let's end on this. As, as we work through what's going on in the world right now and the difference between surviving this crisis and finding new opportunities for success in this crisis, what, what advice do you have for people who are searching for a way up in these downtimes? You know, right now for me, and this is the the sad thing about uh, the the times that we live in, and and bear with me here for a second, Doug, Um, do your best to eliminate the the negativity. You turn on the TV, you go to social media, it's just negative, negative, negative. Negativity has never done anything for anybody. And so I choose to be positive and optimistic. Matter of fact, in, in our company, one of our values is optimism. I choose to believe that you can find a way. I, again, I don't believe in, thank God it's Friday. You know, thank God it's Monday. And so I, I choose to believe in the positive aspects and find a way through any situation. And maybe that does come from, from my background, but uh, negativity just doesn't do anything for anyone. So first and foremost, I would say, look for the positives. Know your numbers of your company. I, I live by this. Know your numbers. Know your company. Don't know your numbers. You don't know your company. So for us, where we have been incredibly blessed and fortunate is our company was set up to withstand something like this. We didn't know that anything like this would ever exist, but we put a foundation in place that allowed us to be prepared for an event like this. So, you know, the big thing for me, I would tell people right now, it's a great opportunity to really dig into your company, know your numbers, what can you cut, what expenses can you do away with, uh, and what opportunities can you find that you can thrive coming out the other side of this? Because we will come through it, uh, we, it will pass, but 
you know, right now in the moment, what expenses can you cut? What can you do to, to make sure you come out of this? And more importantly, where, what opportunities can you find when we do come through this? If people want to learn more about Scribe Media, how can they do that? You can go to scribemedia.com or you can go to scribewriting.com and both will give you very uh, deep dive into our process, what we do, how we do it. There's videos on there, testimonials on there. Every question you could possibly have, the answer is, is on the site. So I would encourage anyone who's interested in writing their book to, to go take a look and it, take it a step further. I would encourage anyone who has a story, which we all do, write your book, even if it's not with us. Don't wake up two, three, five years from now. Write your book. I have read the David Goggins book, and the quality is fantastic. <laughs> Thank you, sir. JT, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Doug, this was awesome. Humbled and flattered you had me, sir. Thank you. For everybody at Iris Media Works, our producer, Jakey Beard, and the Permission to Succeed team, this is Doug Heikinen. Have a good day. <laughs>